While our time this afternoon falls under the title uh, of justification and the new perspective on Paul, uh, and if what you really want to learn about is forgiving the unforgivable um, or covenant confusion, then uh, perhaps as I pray, uh, you can without embarrassment um, make your way out of the room. And when I open my eyes, if there's nobody present, I'll, uh, I'll draw the conclusion that my eschatology has been seriously mistaken for, for many years. So let's bow together this afternoon for a moment of prayer, seeking God's blessing on our time together, thanking Him for the riches that we've already received from His Word, thanking Him for the variety of personality and servant that He creates, thanking Him that He is not lacking in imagination in the way in which He shapes His servants for service to us, and thanking Him, too, that He gives us such a variety of ministry that there are occasions when individuals are shaped by the passage on which they're preaching or by the experiences of their life, by the burden that God has given in their ministry that seems to shape the ministry that we receive from them to our lives, our circumstances, and our needs, not because of their unique piety, but because of God's unique shaping of them and of us. Our Father, we are grateful to You for the privileges that are ours, for the freedom that we still enjoy in this country to worship You in public places without fear of molestation, indeed under the defense of the powers that be. And as we experience in these days that privilege in rich measure, having ordered our regular tasks in life in such a way that in this concentrated form we might place ourselves under the ministry of Your Word and have time and freedom and relaxation to meet with one another, to encourage one another. We pray that in this session, too, you would instruct us. We pray for wisdom and understanding. We pray for grace. We pray for insight that we may be like the Old Testament men of Issachar who understood the times and knew what to do. We thank You, our God, that those who trust in You are those that You make strong in Your Word and by Your Holy Spirit. And we pray that You would continue to equip us in this season of fellowship and ministry and worship that we are enjoying in these two days. So, we give You our thanks. We pray for Your blessing on the other meetings that are running concurrently to this, and we ask that You would now be with us in Jesus, our Savior's name. Amen.
Well, let me begin by uh, reading to you from the passage with which we began our conference yesterday evening in Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Paul has been uh, expounding the theme of the reason why all men by nature are under the wrath of God, chapter 1, verse 18. And he has concluded in verse 19 that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. For centuries in the exposition of Paul's doctrine of justification by faith and his understanding of the role of the law, these verses have been interpreted in a way that I imagine most of us, if not all of us in this room, interpret them. Paul has been speaking about the condemnation of the law. In speaking of the condemnation of the law, he has been thinking about the way in which the divine commandments have been broken. Not particularly the national civil commandments, not even the ceremonial commandments, but the commandments on which both the national and the liturgical ceremonial aspects of the Mosaic law were based, what we characteristically describe as the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the law of God. In understanding that, we understand that when that law speaks, it speaks to all. It speaks to Jew and to Gentile. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world 
held accountable to God. The whole world is not simply Jewish or Gentile. The whole world is Jew and Gentile. And so, in the light of that, Paul concludes, by works of the law. That is understood certainly within the tradition of Reformed exposition, indeed of Lutheran exposition of Romans chapter 3, when Paul says, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. We understand Paul to be saying, there is nothing that we do to earn the righteousness of God. Indeed, everything we do brings us under the wrath of God. And therefore, works of the law constitute everything that we attempt to do in our sinfulness that might merit the grace or salvation of God. The Apostle Paul is saying it is impossible because by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since all that the law brings to me is the knowledge of my inability to keep the law. All the law brings to me is the knowledge of my sinfulness. And then he comes in with his message about the grace and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that what the law could not do, as he goes on to say in chapter 8, what the law could not do, weakened as it was, not because of the nature of its imperatives, but because of the weakness of my ability to fulfill those imperatives because of my sinfulness, what the law could not do, God has done in Jesus Christ, who took the form of my sinful flesh and died for my sin in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be met and worked out in my life as I live according to the Holy Spirit. Now, when we are thinking, as we are going to do in the next hour, of the doctrine of justification and what is nowadays called the new perspective on Paul, we are thinking about a reading of Paul. It is a broader issue than that, but we are thinking of a reading of Paul that radically transforms that reading that I have just given. And perhaps, uh, because I'm sure we come to this subject with varying degrees of interest, perhaps some of you just couldn't be bothered getting up out of your seat and going into the other room, with varying degrees of knowledge and understanding, I want us to try and creep up slowly on this question of Paul and the new perspective on his teaching. In the years in which I've been in the United States or coming to the United States, which uh, amounts to about a quarter of a century now, I've noticed that about every seven years or so, in the circles in which I tend to move, something new comes down the pike and is frequently the question that you are asked somewhere between the airport and the conference center. <laughs> and in my experience, it's varied quite a bit way back in the dim and distant past. It used to be, what was my view of the millennium? And then it became, what's your view of theonomy? And then it became, 
Is your church a seeker-sensitive church? Or it was, where are you in the worship wars? To which the answer was probably badly bruised. (laughs) And now increasingly, at least this is my experience, I'm sitting there in the automobile and my kind driver who has happily recognized me at the airport turns to me and says, what do you think of the new perspective? There's something inside me that wants to reply, I'm still trying to work out the old perspective. Don't confuse me with the new perspective. But some of you who follow these things will have noticed how increasingly on websites, Uh, in conferences, in literature, and often, if my experience is anything to go by, in Reformed churches, increasingly among members of congregations and among elders, this question now is raised to somewhat more than a whisper. We need to know about the new perspective. Well, let me say several things by way of preliminary introduction. Number one, what is usually referred to as the new perspective on Paul covers a very broad category of individuals, covers a very broad category of people belonging to otherwise, you would think, different theological camps. And it's important for us to understand that. It's important for us to understand that when we speak about the new perspective on Paul, we have not determined the way in which those individuals who adopt in general the new perspective, we haven't determined exactly what they think on a wide range of issues. All we have determined is that there is a general approach to interpreting particularly Paul's letters that they share in common. Now, I say that because it's never altogether fair to an individual or even a group of individuals simply to lump them together and to assume that they all cross one another's T's and dot one another's I's. In fact, in my experience and exposure to the new perspective on Paul, it's very difficult to find two representatives of the new perspective on Paul who do cross each other's T's and who do dot one another's I's. But they do approach Paul through a particular pair of lenses to which we will come. Second thing to say by way of preliminary is that the new perspective on Paul is basically a movement that's arisen among biblical scholars. That is to say, those whose areas of scholarship is in dealing with the biblical texts. I am not by profession a a narrowly biblical scholar. I'm a systematic theologian by uh, localized discipline. But it's appropriate, nevertheless, for somebody in my category of human being to speak about this matter because anything that touches on how we interpret the gospel, how we interpret the Apostle Paul, is bound eventually to impinge on the way in which the Christian church constructs its theology and then within that context preaches its gospel. 
It's very important for us, and I think probably in the Reformed community we tend to understand this fairly clearly. It's very important for us to understand that what goes on, as it were, in the supposed ivory towers of academic biblical scholarship eventually hits the road on which we live as a church and a congregation. And for that reason, it's helpful for us, healthful for us, to be at least sensitive to some of the things that are going on in the trends of biblical scholarship. So those two things are of importance for me to say, as is a third thing as we move into the material itself. What I want to speak about, and I do this because I'm rather conscious that we belong to a pretty uh, considerable spectrum of interest, knowledge, and understanding. What I want to do essentially is to say three things. Number one, to spend some time trying to explain what the new perspective on Paul is. Second, to speak to you a little about how that new perspective on Paul developed because that's not an insignificant factor in the whole thing. And thirdly, I want to try and give you some pointers as to how I believe we ought to try to assess the new perspective on Paul. First of all, the new perspective on Paul, what is it? Actually, it would probably be more accurate to say that the new perspective is not, first of all, a new perspective on Paul. But the thing that is common to advocates of the new perspective is that they believe that within Protestant scholarship, we have discovered a new perspective on the Judaism in which Paul was reared, a new perspective on the Judaism that was the culture of his discovery of Jesus Christ, and a new perspective on the Judaism that in some senses, in what looks like a Christianized form, became one of the thorns in his flesh as he, for example, dealt with issues, both in connection with his writing of Romans and his writing of Galatians. And the new perspective is this. Ask the typical Presbyterian or Protestant what a Jew in the days of Saul of Tarsus believed about salvation, and it is said the characteristic response would be for hundreds of years that Jew believed that he could be saved by his works of righteousness. That Jew believed that he could be saved by his works of righteousness. Now, of the quintessence of the new perspective on Paul is this theme and thesis, that that is entirely wrong. The notion that the Apostle Paul was converted out of a religion of works righteousness not only does a disservice to Judaism, it is just plain wrong. Rather, and this is how the individual who in the last quarter of a century has probably been most instrumental in launching the new perspective on Paul puts it, rather, the Judaism of Paul's time was a Judaism that believed in grace. It was a religion of grace. 
Grace was the way of salvation, and the relationship between grace and works was, for all practical purposes, simply this. The way into the covenant community, the way into the community of salvation is entirely of God's grace, of God's gift, of God's election. The way of staying in that community is, of course, by obedience to the commands of the law, by doing the works of the law. And that being the case, that being the case, if you will follow on the thinking of these people, that being the case, we are bound to conclude essentially one of two things. Either one, that Paul misunderstood Judaism. As a matter of fact, that's a view that has sometimes been taken. Paul simply misunderstood the Judaism of Palestine. And there was a time, an older time, when scholars sometimes debated the question whether Paul was, was a, a Jew of a certain kind of stripe that was so different from Palestinian Judaism that he never really grasped what the Judaism of Palestine and Jerusalem really was. So, we conclude either that Paul misunderstood Judaism or, alternatively, that the Western church particularly, but since most of us here it looks as though we belong to the Western church, let's just call it the church, or the church has misunderstood Paul because the church characteristically has said before he was converted, Paul believed that he would be saved by pulling himself up by his bootstrings. He discovered that salvation is by grace, and so much of his writing is an injection of the teaching of the gospel to those who believe that you can be saved by works. And so, for example, at the time of the Reformation, it is said at the time of the Reformation, what do we discover? We discover, again it is said, that the Reformers read their Bibles and say things like, ah, these Roman Catholics, they are just in the same position as the Jews. They believe that we are saved by works righteousness. We're not saved by grace. They deny that we are saved by grace. We are saved by works. And so the connection was made in a very interesting way between the great split that took place at the time of the Protestant Reformation and the great split that took place in the first century in the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And so it is said, what has actually developed in the Western church is that the model for understanding Paul's gospel has been read through the lenses of the conversion experience of somebody like Martin Luther. There is Martin Luther. He is seeking to work his way to heaven. He begins to understand you can't work your way to heaven, and he now rests exclusively on the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Works are set over against grace, and so the New Testament itself is read in the light of the conversion experience of a Martin Luther. And the result is that Judaism, the Pharisees, 
the teaching of the New Testament is understood through an entirely wrong grid. Now, we probably need to stand back just a moment and see how particularly significant this view becomes in an age that is one, post-Holocaust, and two, ecumenical. It becomes significant in an age that is post-Holocaust because it radically transforms the standard Christian way of looking at Judaism. It is significant in an ecumenical context because it transforms the whole context in which people today understand the Reformation. And while it is by no means true, by no means true, let me say that a third time, by no means true of all those who adopt the new perspective on Paul, it is undoubtedly true that for some of those who adopt it, the cash value of it is the way in which they believe this new perspective on Paul that sees Judaism essentially as a religion of grace and not of works, provides a stepping stone to, to dealing with the almost perennial hostility between Jews and Gentiles on the one hand and Protestants and Roman Catholics on the other. So this is not for many, this is not simply a kind of ivory tower understanding, re-interpretation of Paul's gospel. They would say genuine interpretation of Paul's gospel. This is actually an understanding of Paul's gospel that deals with two of the biggest problems in the Western world. Now let me give you or try and give you a flavor of this. First of all, with a quotation from E.P. Sanders. E.P. Sanders is, at least in the last quarter century or a little more now, E.P. Sanders is the scholar whose work has launched the new perspective uh, onto the horizon of the scholarly community. And here is what he says. Following a description of a kind of characteristic interpretation of Paul's teaching on justification in Galatians, he goes on to say this. Luther saw the world and the Christian life quite differently from Paul's teaching to the Galatians. He was impressed by the fact that though a Christian, he nevertheless felt himself to be a sinner. He suffered from guilt. Paul, however, did not have a guilty conscience. Paul, however, did not have a guilty conscience. Before his conversion to being an apostle of Christ, he had been, as we saw, blameless with regard to righteousness under the law. Now, that's not E.P. Sanders. That's Philippians 3.6. Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. As an apostle, this is Sanders, as an apostle, he could not think of anything which would count against himself at the final judgment, though he left open the possibility that God might find some fault. Luther, plagued by guilt, read Paul's passages on righteousness by faith as meaning that God reckoned a Christian to be righteous even though he or she was a sinner. 
Luther understood righteousness to be judicial, a declaration of innocence, but also fictional, ascribed to Christians by mere imputation, since God was merciful. So you see, Sanders is drawing a wide gulf between Luther's personal experience through which Sanders says he reads the New Testament and what Paul actually says in the New Testament itself. Let me give you another sample just so that perhaps those of you who are not familiar with the literature might get a flavor of it. This is taken uh, from the writings of the English scholar, now the Bishop of Durham, uh, N.T. Wright. Uh, Sometimes you will see him usually in his more popular works. He writes them under the name of Tom Wright. His more scholarly works appear uh, under the name N.T. Wright. Here is Tom Wright. I must stress again that the doctrine of justification by faith is not what Paul means by the gospel. It is implied by the gospel. When the gospel is proclaimed, people come to faith and so regarded by God as members of his people. But the gospel is not an account of how people get saved. It is, as we saw in an earlier chapter, the proclamation of the lordship of Jesus Christ. Let us be quite clear. The gospel is the announcement of Jesus' lordship which works with power to bring people into the family of Abraham, now redefined around Jesus Christ and characterized solely by faith in him. Justification is the doctrine which insists that all those who have this faith belong as full members of this family on this basis and no other. In other words, what Tom Wright is essentially saying there is that justification does not belong to soteriology, the way in which an individual is saved. Justification belongs to ecclesiology. It's the way we describe those who belong to the community of God. So the real question that is raised by the new perspective is the question of rethinking the gospel which the Apostle Paul preached. And it has, in its own view, several advantages. Number one, it is a clearer expression of the gospel. Number two, it greatly relieves the anti-Semitism of the Christian church. Number three, it has the potential to get us beyond the Reformation in which this gospel was not perfectly understood. And number four, especially in the case of Tom Wright, because it places at the center the lordship of Jesus Christ, it liberates the church from its inward subjective pietism to reclaim the order of this world for the lordship of Jesus Christ. Now, let me use as a springboard just for a moment the words that Tom Wright uh, uh, uses that I quoted just a moment ago. Let us be quite clear. The gospel is not justification by faith. Justification by faith is not the gospel. 
I think it would be true to say, I think it would be true to say that there are, there, there's a growing number of uh, evangelical ministers, perhaps particularly ministers, but ministers and elders who have been considerably influenced by the new perspective. And one of the reasons, in my own view, they have been influenced by the new perspective lies in this. If we were to pause and and I were to hand out a, a blank sheet of paper to everybody in the room, and on that blank sheet of paper there was a question at the top, in your understanding, what for the Apostle Paul was the gospel? I would be amazed beyond words if every single sheet of paper had the same answer. And I say that for this simple reason that it seems to me that even in the evangelical world, in some ways especially in the evangelical world where we claim to understand the gospel, it is absolutely amazing what people believe the gospel to be. And so there is a tremendous, there is really a tremendous challenge, it seems to me, for Orthodox Christianity presented to us by the new perspective on Paul because it raises for us this absolutely central question. Have we really well understood the gospel? Are we actually agreed on what the gospel is? Is it clear, wherever we go in the evangelical world as we listen to preaching, is it as clear as the noses on our faces that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel we all well understand and well articulate? And if that isn't true, then it shouldn't surprise us that any movement that moves around the circumference of the evangelical church, even the Reformed church, will inevitably make an impact because the thing we have all assumed we really understand, we have in fact not well understood at all. And so there is an enormous challenge, it seems to me, in this whole question of the new perspective on Paul. And looking at it simply from the providential point of view, since I do not share the new perspective on Paul, looking at it from the providential point of view, one of the things that we need to be doing in this context, no matter how near or how far we seem to be where we live, where we do church from the new perspective on Paul, is to be absolutely clear that we ourselves really do understand the gospel. Really do understand the gospel and are able clearly to articulate it. So much then in general for the new perspective. Let me uh, take us just a little bit further now by dealing with the second thing that I want to focus on, and I'll take a little longer to do that because it will uh, clarify what we are speaking about here. Now, the new perspective, not just what it is, the new perspective is really a new perspective on Judaism that becomes the lenses through which we read especially the Apostle Paul, but also the Gospels, in such a way that we understand that the real issue here between Judaism and Christianity is not grace or works. It is really the simple question of whether or not we recognize 
that Jesus is the promised Messiah and that he is Lord. Now, how did this develop? Well, that's a very long story, but the shorthand version of it essentially is this. For hundreds of years now, Western Christian scholarship has been dominated by German scholarship. And German church life, and to a certain extent, uh, German scholarship has been dominated by the shadow of Martin Luther. Martin Luther believed that what Paul was teaching, what the Reformation was teaching, it is said, was that the works of our hands cannot save us, only grace can save us. That was the dichotomy, that was the contrast. And so it has been assumed down through the years that the Judaism of which we read in the New Testament is itself a misunderstanding of the covenant grace of God in the Old Testament that it's a distortion, that it's a perversion, that a Pharisee believed that he worked his way to heaven, that a Pharisee denied grace, that before Saul of Tarsus was converted, he denied grace. And then, uh, within the last hundred years or so, both among Jews and Gentiles, Scholarly work has been done on the general literature surrounding the couple of hundred years before Christ, the couple of hundred years after Christ, and its examination has drawn this conclusion that Judaism was not a religion of works. It was a religion of grace. In more recent times, Rather quietly, a Welsh scholar by the name of W.D. Davies published a work, Paul and Rabbinic Judaism, in 1948, and basically his reading of Paul was this, that Paul was a Jewish rabbi who found that Jesus was the Messiah and the fulfillment of the prophecies of the Old Testament. It wasn't that Saul of Tarsus, as he went along the Damascus Road, believed that he could get to heaven by his own works, and he was converted to understand that he could only get to heaven by grace. He always believed that the only way to heaven was by grace. The only thing that changed on the Damascus Road was the recognition that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so, the thing that really changed in Saul was not a conversion from works salvation to grace salvation, but a conversion from misunderstanding who Jesus was to truly understanding who Jesus was. The conversion was not at the level of, by what means are we saved? only at the level of what is the true identity of the Messiah. So back 56 years ago, 1948, somewhere in the atmosphere, those notions were, as it were, floating around the world of scholarship. Then in the early 1960s, a Swedish Lutheran, later on Bishop of Stockholm, but at the time the Dean of the Harvard Divinity School, gave a lecture in all places at the American Psychological Society 
1961, and later published a form of the lecture that he had given in an essay entitled, Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. It was a hugely influential article, Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. Among the things that Stendhal said were these. Number one, when you read the writings of the theologians of the Eastern Church, you do not find this sense of guilt and condemnation under the law that you find in the Western Church. Why is that the case? Well, part of it is the case because of the way in which Augustine was converted. In the modern period, the chief reason you find it is because of the way in which Martin Luther was converted. The only sin he claimed the only sin of which the Apostle Paul was actually conscious was the sin of rejecting Jesus as the Messiah and therefore persecuting the community of the Christian church. In his own eyes, even as an apostle, before his conversion, Philippians 3, as far as the law was concerned, as far as righteousness according to the law was concerned, he had it all. He was blameless. So, when Paul looked back upon his experience, his testimony was not, I was covered with a sense of guilt. I felt condemned. I tried so hard to keep God's law, and I'd failed miserably, and I was so overwhelmed I needed to cast myself and my sinfulness on Jesus Christ as the only Savior in order to be justified. No, Paul's testimony was, as far as the law was concerned, I was blameless. Where I was blameworthy was that I persecuted the church of Jesus Christ because I was too blind to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. So, Saul of Tarsus' conversion was not so much a conversion from works righteousness to grace salvation, but rather a call in which he discovered that Jesus was the true Messiah. And since Jesus was the true Messiah, part of his task was now to point to Jesus as the only Messiah. And all of this underlining the way in which God's purposes are fulfilled in the fulfillment of his promise to the Jews within the context of his grace. Then in the mid-1970s, E.P. Sanders, Ed Sanders, appeared on the scene. Sanders uh, uh, was, in fact, uh, uh, the son-in-law of W.D. Davies. And in 1977, he published a work entitled Paul and Palestinian Judaism. And it's this book that has revolutionized the map of New Testament scholarship, particularly Pauline scholarship in the present day. Davies studied, now notice this, he studied patterns of religion in Paul and his context and in the Jewish literature between about 200 BC and 200 AD. And he drew this conclusion that Judaism in that period is a religion of grace. 
It's a religion he describes in, in an expression that is much used in this context. It's a religion of covenantal nomism. Uh, nomism comes from the Greek word nomos, covenantally oriented obedience to the law. In other words, what a Jew of Paul's day believed was simply this, that it's the covenant of God in its amazing grace that establishes my position in God's community. And it's my obedience to the covenant demands that maintains my place in the covenant community. And if I should stumble and fall, then God has provided atoning sacrifices to enable me to retain my position in the covenant community. In other words, Sanders was claiming Judaism was not a religion of works. The pattern of Judaizing faith was not, I must pull myself up by my bootstrings. The pattern was, I'm in the covenant community because God has elected us, because God called us out of bondage in Egypt, because God gave Torah to us. And I keep within the covenant community by fulfilling the law of God. And if I stumble and fail in the fulfillment of the law of God, then God has provided restorative sacrifices. Now, in that context, Sanders says, when we view the New Testament in that light, we understand that the only difference between Paul and Palestinian Judaism at this point is the identity of Jesus of Nazareth, in whom the grace of God is seen. And so, says Sanders, Paul comes to understand that since in Jesus Christ we have the fulfillment of the covenant promises of God, Salvation cannot be by Torah, because if it were, then the Gentiles would be excluded, and Jesus Christ would have died in vain. In summary form, in one of the most famous statements, probably the most famous statement in Sanders' book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, Sanders says, this is what Paul finds wrong with Judaism. Now, remember, the old answer was, Judaism tells you, you work your way to heaven. The new answer says, no, Judaism is grace. The only thing that Paul finds wrong with Judaism is it's not Christianity. In other words, the pattern of religion is exactly a pattern of grace. God gives His grace you respond to that grace. You are in the community. The way in which you keep yourself in the community is by obedience to what God has commanded. And even if you fail, God has provided. He has made provision in the sacrifices so that you can, as it were, be restored to the community. So that the difference between Judaism and Christianity, between Saul and Paul, is very different from the way in which typically Protestantism has conceived that difference and very different from the way in which Protestantism has used that difference to say things like, 
And that's exactly the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Roman Catholicism believes that you are saved by works. Protestantism believes that you are saved by grace. Now, Sanders, I think, had almost no interest, really, in the implications of this for the life of the Christian church. Very little interest, if any, in changing the teaching of the Christian church on the basis of this. But two figures who have had considerable interest in that are James Dunn and N.T. Wright. James Dunn uh, is an exceedingly learned New Testament scholar, uh, has served uh, in these last uh, years as the Lightfoot Professor of Divinity in the University of Durham in England, although he is actually Scottish. And it, it is James Dunn who is, who is actually the coiner of the expression, the new perspective on Paul. And James Dunn fleshes out Sanders' view a little. He argues that the law, Torah, is given to the Jews both as a sign of election. How do you know as a Jew that you are elect? Because God has given you the gift of Torah. And he also understands that the role that the Jewish people understood in the time of Paul, the role that they understood the works of the law had, was limited essentially to those ceremonial aspects of life that were the boundary markers between the Jew and the Gentile, particularly circumcision, keeping Sabbath, and observing the kosher food laws. That being the case, Dunn is particularly keen to indicate that when Paul says we are not justified by the works of the law, those are the things that he's speaking about. He's not speaking about pulling yourself up by your bootstrings. He's saying these ceremonial distinctivenesses, these works of the law are not the means of our justification, and therefore they cannot be ultimately the means of division between Jew and Gentile. So, he says, Paul's concern is not legalism against grace, but demanding works that are contrary to the freedom that faith in Jesus Christ as the universal Messiah now brings. But probably for our purposes, the most significant figure in all of these discussions is N.T. Wright. And he is significant indeed in many ways. He's become the storm center for one or two very obvious reasons. Number one is that he has a profoundly evangelical and reformed background. Number two is that he fairly consistently, certainly when he's speaking to evangelical groups, describes himself as evangelical and even working within a Calvinian framework. He argues vigorously that his only concern is to follow where the text of the New Testament leads. And he has also done some extremely powerful work in 
destroying the liberal theology of our times and the liberal Christology of our times. And he also happens to be the third most prominent bishop in the Church of England. In other words, he is an individual who actually believes what he teaches is the gospel. And that's enormously significant. E.P. Sanders doubtless uh, believed that what he did in his research was true. question of whether it was a gospel to be preached to anybody in the modern world is very incidental in the work of E.P. Sanders. The thing that is so striking about Tom Wright is that he holds, if, is, if this is the gospel, if we really need to re-understand the gospel, then that is going to make powerful impact on the way in which we preach this gospel to a lost and broken generation. And with that kind of passion, as well as the quality of his scholarship, it isn't at all surprising that he has proved to be, of all of these figures, probably the most influential. Tom Wright shares many of these perspectives. The content of Paul's gospel is not justification by grace, but Jesus Christ is Lord. The nature of Paul's conversion is not that he is driven to Christ by a guilty conscience, but that his understanding is illumined into the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, so that the nature of Paul's mission is to bring together Jew and Gentile in Jesus Christ. You see how gripping this can be, incidentally, for an individual who has any real sense of world evangelism. Understanding that this means you cannot possibly be indifferent to bringing Jew and Gentile into one in Jesus Christ, and that the nature of justification is that it's not a description of the way in to grace but a description of those who are already in grace. Now, in the midst of that, there, there are particular distinctives about these individuals, but one of the distinctives that a number of them share, and I think this would undoubtedly include um, James Dunn and N.T. Wright, is that in their understanding of the work of Jesus Christ, in their understanding of the work of Jesus Christ, they have all moved away from the notion that the work of Jesus Christ is a penal substitution to the notion that the work of Jesus Christ is a matter of representation. They have all moved away from the notion of the importance of the act of obedience of Christ, and they have all moved away from any notion of the double imputation of my sins to Jesus Christ and Christ's righteousness to me. Indeed, it's very clear in Tom Wright's exposition of Paul, both in his general literature and in his commentary work, that his understanding of the righteousness of God is that the righteousness of God is not something that God imputes to us, but a characteristic that God possesses in Himself. He is faithful to His covenant promises. And in the midst of all this, the agenda that is set here seems to me to involve 
one particular thing, that in this way the evangelical church can be delivered from individualism, subjectivism, and pietism. And you will find a note, and it certainly runs through Tom Wright's work, you will find a note, and strikingly it runs through the thought patterns of many who have been attracted to the new perspective in evangelical and Reformed communities, that to be delivered from an obsession with individualism, subjectivism, and pietism is regarded as a good thing. Tom Wright gives a very interesting illustration of this when he tells us what a relief it was to him when he discovered, and he quotes the Anglican theologian uh, Richard Hooker, that we are not justified by believing in justification. We are not justified by believing in justification. And he's touching on it seems to me a misunderstanding of the gospel that may well indeed be widespread, although it ought not to be widespread, in the evangelical community. What is the gospel? The gospel is you must be born again. People all over the place were saying that in the 1960s and 1970s. What is the gospel? The gospel is I've been born again. No, that's the fruit of the gospel. That's not the gospel. The gospel has got to do with Jesus Christ. And there has been I think we ought to recognize this. There has been in our, commu- in our Reformed community, we are constantly wrestling with the deep-seated way in which the evangelical church tends to turn the gospel on its head and make what happens in me the gospel instead of what happened on the cross being the gospel. And right and others certainly hold that in the case of the new perspective on Paul, there is the possibility of being delivered from all of these things. So that righteousness means the faithfulness of God. The works of the law describe the boundary markers between Jew and Gentile. The gospel is that Jesus is Lord, and to be justified simply means that you belong to the community of God's people. In other words, justification is not an individualistic thing but a description of a community of people. Now, so much then for a fairly elongated uh, attempt to describe elements of the new perspective. Uh, The literature on the new perspective, incidentally, has become a minor industry in its own. Let me spend the remainder of our time uh, trying to make some comments, I hope, helpful on the way in which we should assess the new perspective on Paul. And I want to express four very serious reservations. Tendency, uh, reservation number one is this, that advocates of the new perspective on Paul all seem to have a tendency to establish straw men. They all seem to have a tendency to establish straw men. Let me give you what seem to me to be the two most uh, egregious illustrations of that. 
the description that's given of Palestinian Judaism from the original sources. E.P. Sanders argues, demonstrate to us that Palestinian Judaism was a religion of grace, and everything flows from that. Everything flows from that. But what you discover in E.P. Sanders' own work is that whenever he comes across anything that seems to be repudiating that notion, he will say things like, well, it wasn't really a system, so you can't expect consistency. Or, well, this was the kind of thing that was being preached, but that wasn't the theology. And so, in the very course of his own amassing of the information that leads him to the conclusion that Judaism was pure and simply a religion of grace, he moves to the margins and then beyond the margins anything that he has discovered in the literature that actually demonstrates that his thesis isn't really true. That in so many instances, the way in which grace is described is not that it's the free and unfettered grace of God in the gospel. But sometimes it's as simple as this. It's God's generosity in accepting you if you managed only 55% that he's saying, well, that just about tips the scales. And so, in that Judaism, we are accepted by grace. I don't know if this will give some of you an insight into what is going on here, and, uh, and uh, if it does, well and good. If it doesn't, forget I ever said it. Some of you will have read the novels of the, of the Jewish rabbi Chaim Potok. Some of you have read him. If you came to read Chaim Potok with the notion that it must be absolutely horrible to be an Orthodox Jew, it must be a completely joyless religion, you would have been in for a shock. You would have been staggered, for example, to read that there are some Orthodox synagogues in New York where the rabbi will dance round clutching the Torah with great delight, that you don't talk about, even if you, even if you are in mourning, you do not mourn on the Sabbath day because the Sabbath day is a day of joy. And you might be tempted to think, is everything, I, is everything I learned from my Sunday school teacher wrong? And then you read on and, and you discover all of this is mingled with a kind of strange attempt to be righteous. And you begin to understand that the grace that is being spoken of here it's not so much the sheer and absolute grace of God for which nothing can qualify us, but the grace of God that in a way accepts us the way we are, counts 55% as a passing grade. And one finds the same thing. Of course, one finds the same thing in Palestinian Judaism. And the key to the whole thing seems to me to be this, very strikingly, that it's an altogether different thing to use the language of grace from being able to spell grace in exactly the way the Bible spells grace. Now, why is that so significant? It's significant because 
in the interpretation of Palestinian Judaism as a religion of grace apart from works when it's actually a religion of so-called grace mingled with works. The same interpreters of Palestinian Judaism wear exactly the same lenses when they look at what took place at the Reformation. They come to the Reformation and they say, here are the Roman Catholics. They believed that the Christian faith had nothing to do with grace. Here is Martin Luther. Martin Luther discovers it's got to do with grace. There couldn't be a more radical misunderstanding of what took place at the time of the Reformation than that. If you had asked a 14th century Roman Catholic theologian, is it true that you don't believe in grace? He would have burst out laughing. He would have said, where on earth did you hear that? Most of our theology is about grace. Our church is about grace. Don't you know what the sacraments are? They are the means of grace. They're not the means of works. They're the means of grace. The whole church is put together by grace. So what did Luther discover? Uh, you see, what Martin Luther discovered was that all the talk of grace was misspelling grace. This was exactly the point he believed, I think, rightly. He saw in the supposed grace religion of Judaism in the days of the Apostle Paul that the language of grace was employed. But the way to get grace was so described and defined that to use the words of the Apostle Paul grace is no more grace. So, there are straw men put up. It seems to me that there is, there is a molding of the evidence of Palestinian Judaism, and there is a radical and serious misunderstanding of what took place at the time of the Protestant Reformation. And more than that, and I think this may be far more significant than people ever take account of, there is often a difference between what is written in a work of theology and what is actually going on in the life of the church. A lot of difference between the analysis of the scholar and the practice and indeed the preaching that takes place in the community. Let me give you an illustration of this. This may seem shocking to some of you, but I doubt that there is a Protestant seminary in the Western world where it isn't possible to learn that the gospel of Jesus Christ is entirely a gospel of grace. Actually, it would surprise me that if a, if a theologian in a liberal seminary said, we are saved by works. The last place you would expect somebody to say we are saved by works actually would be in a liberal seminary. No, we are saved by grace. Does that mean in every Protestant pulpit in the world the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ is being preached? By no means. By no means. I have met ministers who would be appalled to think that salvation comes by anything but grace who I rather suspect have never preached a sermon of true grace in their lives and don't really understand the gospel at all and communicate to their congregation that the only way to be saved is by doing their bit. They may even have used the language of grace, but the language of grace is set in such a context that, to use Paul's language again, grace is no more grace. 
And I personally am rather thrilled to realize that Paul himself thought that way. That you could say grace, but actually mean something else. So, first of all, I think there is a serious concern here that straw men are raised up. Second, it seems to me that it's seriously mistaken to think that the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, had no sin consciousness prior to his conversion. What he says in Philippians chapter 3 is, it seems to me to be perfectly plain, not a statement that he views himself as having been lacking in sin, but that at the point prior to his conversion, he assumed that he had kept the law. And therefore, part of the transition that was needed for him was to discover that what he thought he had accomplished, rather than being a fulfillment of grace, was contrary to grace, and therefore, rather than being counted as gain, needed to be counted as loss. In other words, and it's perhaps not surprising that some Christians have thought this, in other words, Saul of Tarsus was in exactly the same position as the rich young ruler. I've kept all these commandments from my youth upwards. And how interesting that Jesus should say, let's talk about covetousness then. Go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Come and follow me. And the arrow goes into his heart, and he discovers that he is a sinner. And so we are to think of the Apostle Paul. Think of what he says, for example, in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8 when he speaks about the law coming to him. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now, it seems to me that the most obvious reading of that is to understand that Paul is speaking about his sin consciousness. Listen to how Tom Wright interprets that. This is from his commentary on Romans. And I often feel our, our, our danger in dealing with some of these things is not to be fair. But I ask you, are we to expect that as he heard the letter of Paul to the Romans, read in his little church in Rome, a Roman slave would understand that this is what Paul meant. This is not about Paul himself. It is about the moment in Israel's history when the arrival of the law meant that the miscellaneous sin that existed from Adam to Moses would again become trespass-breaking of a known law. It seems to me that that stretches our doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture beyond any realms of intelligibility. That Paul, writing to these dear Roman Christians, should say something that, as a matter of fact, for 20 centuries the Christian church has been light years away from seeing. That when it looked as though by saying, this happened to me, and this happened to me, and this happened to me, Paul is actually saying, now I want you to understand, this didn't actually happen to me. 
And so it seems to me here and in what Paul says in Romans 3.20, what he says in Ephesians 2, we were all by nature children of wrath because we were dead in trespasses and sins, underlines for us that there's a mistake here in thinking that Saul of Tarsus had no sin consciousness. Thirdly, it seems to me to be an error to think that the works of the law refer only to boundary markers. It's interesting, actually, that that was a view rejected way back in the Middle Ages by Thomas Aquinas. It's not a new view. But the Apostle Paul surely is helping us to understand that however much included those boundary markers are, For example, when the climax of his argument about whether there is salvation by works of the law is what happens in the case of Abraham before the law was given. And he argues, look at the case of Abraham. Abraham was not justified by works of the law. He was justified by grace. The very point he's making is exactly the point that Luther and Calvin and the Reformed Fathers saw in Paul's argument in Romans. Namely, that over against the way of grace, whether it be in connection with ceremony or whether it be in connection with moral deeds, no attempt of human fallen being to keep the law and earn salvation is possible. And indeed, this, this particular view that Paul sets the grace of God in Jesus Christ over against a narrow insistence on the boundary markers of the works of the law cannot be held up in the face of what Paul says in Ephesians 2, 3 to 8, we are saved not by works but by grace, 2 Timothy 1, 9, and Titus 3, 5. And it's here, incidentally, of some significance that I'm not speaking here of Tom Wright, But all of these other scholars would deny that the Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians or 2 Timothy or Titus. So Paul Paul is speaking here in a way that surely is consistent with the teaching of the Reformed Fathers. And fourthly, it seems to me to be mistaken to reduce Paul's use of justification to a description of those who belong to the community. One of the most telling arguments against that is used, is is given in a little article by my friend Chuck Hill, who's a New Testament professor at Reformed Seminary in Orlando. And he says this. He says, you know, the way you discover the semantic range of a word, you know that words are very elastic in different contexts. They can mean somewhat different things. It's the most obvious way to discover how far a word will stretch is to look up a dictionary, a lexicon. And lexicons, Hebrew and Greek lexicons, in this case a Greek lexicon, will give you a wide range of the different ways in which a word can be used. And he says, you'll not find in a dictionary a lexicon under the sun the notion that the dikaio family, justification language, the dikaio family of words is used in the context of describing a community. And so, among many other reasons that uh, I don't really have time 
to deal with. It seems to me that the new perspective is setting those who follow it off on a trajectory that will eventually lead to the dissolution of the gospel. That is not to say that all those who hold to the new perspective have dissolved the gospel. But the trajectory will lead to the dissolution of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here are the things that are of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And on the third day, He was raised again. And that is to say that we emphasize not just that Jesus is Messiah and Lord, but at the epicenter of the gospel is that Jesus is Savior from sin. And the manner in which we are saved from sin is by the shedding of His propitiatory blood in our place. The righteous for the unrighteous. The sin-bearer for the sinner to bring us to God. And if our explorations do anything, then one of the things they ought to do is to bring us back to make sure that the center of the gospel is at the center of our thinking. That we actually cease to think that the message of the gospel is, there has been a change in my life. So long as people think the gospel is, there's been a change in my life, we're always going to be prey to people who say that isn't the gospel. So it's vital for us to give our minds, give our interests, give our study as we read the Scriptures to ask God to illuminate our understanding together so that the one thing on which we would be agreed is the answer to the question, what is the gospel? Well, I've stretched our time way beyond what is reasonable, and uh, I appreciate your patience. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we find ourselves often struggling with the great good news of the gospel. Our minds are so puny, our knowledge of the Scriptures we feel so inadequate. The learning of men sometimes appears to be so overwhelming. And we pray for grace that we may understand the gospel well. And we pray that wherever we find such differences or apparently new teaching, that we may be like the Bereans and go back to the Scriptures to see whether these things be true or no. And we ask for your help and pray for your grace that you would keep us faithful. Lord, we pray that since you have given us this glorious gospel, we may be constrained ourselves to bring this glorious gospel to the world in which we live. Save us, we pray, we beseech you, we pray from being armchair theologians whose ministry lies in deviation and even in heresy. And make us, we pray, gracious witnesses to Jesus Christ that men and women may experience 
the power of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ through faith. We ask it for his great name's sake. Amen.